Well, if you remember, we've uh, divided this into three parts. Our first uh, section is Christian Essentials, which was last week, and this week we'll be looking at Reformed Distinctives, and next week in, at Means of Grace, uh, and and more the local church and um, uh, preaching and sacraments and baptism, Lord's Supper, um, prayer, meeting together, fellowship, those kind of things. But um, today we want to look at at what makes Trinity Reformed Church uh, both Reformed and Presbyterian and uh, kind of what that means in the context of the greater evangelical Christian world and what it means locally and historically as well. So uh, we're going to be looking at hopefully some familiar things, but I wanted to kind of segue from the Christian essentials um, into Reformed distinctives. Uh, As we left off last week, we were talking about how um, at the Reformation, um, the gospel was really recovered from Scripture. Um, And that shouldn't leave a... um, thought in your mind that from the time of the early church until the Reformation uh, in, in 1517 uh, that there was no true church. That, that's not true. There were a lot of uh, churches who were um, faithful to the gospel. It just was not the, the main church, which was the Roman Catholic Church, which was both a political as well as religious organization. Uh, even the emperors um, who sat were essentially under the control in one form or another, and sometimes there were battles between the Roman Catholic Church for political authority and the emperor. Uh, one of the, I'd like to read you this real quick little thing about a, a city. This is an example of as the Reformation began, um, there there were some cities uh, that, and it tended to go on a city by city basis, whether they would be Roman Catholic or Reformed. Uh, and one of those cities was Bern uh, in northern Germany, and uh, the way it became Reformed was one of those very interesting, uh, almost subterfuge ways. Uh, So uh, sometimes God works directly through preaching of people uh, like um, uh, the John Calvins and the Martin Luthers, and sometimes it's more quietly. And in this case, it was much quieter. Um, uh, It's kind of, the burn kind of uh, borders the Netherlands. And there was this uh, fellow by the name of Berchtold Haller, who was a uh, Roman Catholic priest. And he was really influenced by, by Philip Melanchthon, which followed Luther, and by Martin Luther and uh, Zwingli, the reformer. And uh, they would later uh, be in communication with him. But... Um, In 1523, shortly after the Reformation began, the city had affirmed Roman Catholic doctrines. And, uh, in fact, they 
specifically forbade preaching Protestantism and uh, or any of Luther's ideas. But one thing that the city did allow, and this is kind of interesting, is that they allowed preaching of biblical themes. And so one thing that uh, happened was quietly this minister, he set out from the pulpit to begin preaching uh, what was in the Bible. And so, in effect, he was preaching the gospel and, and reforming the church from the pulpit, uh, really being outside of Protestantism at the time. Um, and in 1525, those sermons started replacing the Mass slowly. And so, by 1527... Um, the city had turned Protestant and identified as Protestant. So in a very short period of time, um, essentially those who were in, in preaching Roman Catholicism had fled the city and they were uh, a Protestant city. And the, one of the interesting things is it's called the, the Burn Thesis which was done in 1528, a year after, and this is the uh, the things that were being preached from the pulpit. That the holy, because they couldn't preach Protestantism, these were themes from the Bible. The holy Christian church, whose only head is Christ, is born of the Word of God and remains the same, and hears no stranger's voice. And two, the Church of Christ makes no laws and commandments without the Word of God. Hence, human traditions are no more binding on us than they are founded in the word than they are founded in the word of God. So that's definitely too not, huh? <laughs> not too subtle. No, not too subtle. <laughs> Christ is the only wisdom, righteousness, redemption, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Since it is a denial of Christ when we confess another ground of salvation and satisfaction. The essential and corporeal presence of the body and blood of Christ cannot be de- demonstrated from the Holy Scriptures. <laughs> so there goes transubstantiation. Remember that? Huh? I don't know why you that. They started, it was published in 1528, but he started preaching it in 1526. The Mass is as now in use, in which Christ is offered to God the Father for the sins of the living and the dead is contrary to Scripture, a blasphemy against the most holy sacrifice, passion, and death of Christ, and on account of its abuses and abomination before God. As Christ alone died for us, also he is to be adored as the only mediator and advocate between God the Father and the believers. Therefore, it is contrary to the word of God to propose and invoke any other mediators. Scripture knows nothing of purgatory after this life, hence all masses and other offices for the dead are useless. The worship of images is contrary to Scripture, therefore images should be abolished when they are set up as objects of adoration. Matrimony is not forbidden in the Scripture to any class of men, but permitted to all. And since according to the Scripture... uh, uh, an open fornicator must be excommunicated. It follows that unchastity and impure celibacy are more pernicious to the clergy than to any other class. So, they pretty much wiped out Roman Catholicism from the pulpit. And I, I found that interesting that 
they would allow preaching of a biblical thesis, and that's what recovered the gospel, um, as it did in the Greater Reformation. Uh, it was that was a great example. I, I I thought so. Even though the essential teachings that we see are um, believed by Catholic Roman Catholic Church, um, the gospel itself is an essential to the church's well-being and the church's being, in fact. And, and I think that little um, town uh, in Germany uh, as a, a microsphere of reformation really borne that out. So um, as an example of that, looking backwards, we see people like Tyndall, um, and and the Waldensians, uh, a lot of these smaller groups that we don't hear a lot about had the gospel, preached it in an effective and biblical way. And so the church was not without the gospel for those hundreds of years, but the greater religious and political body, the Roman Catholic Church, had become... Uh, uh, really a preacher of another gospel. And so um, that's kind of where we tie um, into reform distinctives that are really uh, Catholic with a small c as well because we, we look to Catholic, Evangelical, and Reformed as distinctives within the greater body of the of the believing church, and Catholic with a small c is essentially those essential agreements that we have with all, whether they be in the greater evangelical world or whether they be in the reformed world or whether they be in other bodies of believers that we would have strong disagreements with but still consider them to be Christian brothers and sisters. And I think that's one thing we always want to be careful of is that we don't exclude those who we might consider in error on certain teachings that are non-essential, yet the things where the Scripture speaks as being essential to our salvation, um, we're in agreement. And so... Catholic really speaks of that universality or that uniformity where we can look to to the councils and to, for instance, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, it, you'll notice it's very Trinitarian. Uh, the Nicene Creed is an, just an expansion of that, uh, very Trinitarian. We see the a, uh, in, at Chalcedon, um, we see it begin with inclusion of and, or I should say end with inclusion of the the Apostles' Creed um, uh, when it speaks of the Creed of the Holy Fathers that's what they're talking about is the Apostles' Creed and, and obviously it wasn't written by the Apostles but it contains the doctrine of the Apostles and so even early on and throughout Christendom even when the church became uh, embroiled in the political world to the extent that the gospel was was driven to the wayside, um, there were always those who were faithful to the gospel. And in, in an introduction to to reformed 
we can talk about the, the aspects of what is Catholic, what is um, the, those essentials. Well, we talk about the Trinity. We talk about the atonement of Christ. We talk about uh, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. Those things are, are completely uh, Catholic, in, and, and we, we confess those things as being Catholic. And really, when we talk about Catholic, Evangelical, and Reformed, um, we're, we're making the distinction of what's called taxonomy, where we talk about uh, a classification of our theology. So we say uh, evangelical, if we, com- if we, we say we're evangelical, um, all who are evangelical are also Catholic. Okay? But that doesn't necessarily mean that all who are Catholic are evangelical. Okay? What makes a, a believing body or an individual believer evangelical? What's that distinction? That really comes down to the recovery or the belief of the gospel, whether it be whether you're a, a, a Waldensian or a Barian or a uh, or whether you're a uh, uh, Presbyterian. Um, if you're evangelical, you're Catholic and you believe in the justification by faith alone. In other words. Uh, the distinctive that makes someone evangelical is the justification is by faith alone. Okay? And the, the second thing that would make us evangelical is that we believe in the authority of Scripture alone. Those two things, um, you will notice those two things would, tend, would isolate us away from Roman Catholicism and Roman doctrine because of the fact of the aspect of the aloneness. When we say in, that, that, that uh, we are evangelical and believe in Christ alone for our justification, um, it's to the exclusion of, that alone is to the exclusion of any kind of meritorious work. Now, it's not to the exclusion of works, is to the exclusion of meritorious works. So uh, we could we could talk about uh, evangelical and Roman Catholicism as being uh, two sides uh, of of the Catholic world. Um, that faith equals justification plus works would be Roman Catholic, right? So you have faith is justification plus works. So Faith is essentially becomes meritorious. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I uh, did that backwards. 
awesome. That doesn't work right. <laughs> faith plus work equals justification is what I meant. Sorry. I know I'm confusing you now that I'm confused. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Roman Catholicism says faith plus works equals justification. Okay. Protestantism says that faith equals justification plus works. So you can't ever take one away from the other, but in one case, works are meritorious, in the other, they are not. Now, that's why we can, in Reformed theology, we can talk about works of essential or essential works, works of essence or essential works, that there are necessary works, but they're not meritorious works. And that kind of hurts our brain when we think about it that way because when we think of works we think there's reward for those works but uh, there is but not in the sense that it's our relationship before God that is the merit uh, or the reward of the merit of those works it is uh, gifts that are accepted by God but are not in any way salvific and so when we talk about Christ alone, when we talk about faith alone, when we talk about Scripture alone, obviously all those alones uh, are in context. So if you have something alone, it means it's by itself. So if we start adding those things to it, it sounds a little, a little weird, but uh, when we realize we're talking about uh, different contexts in each thing, in other words, we can say, we are saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by the notice of, or the, the, um, the revelation of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Those five things are all alone, but they're in context of, of them being together. And we, we look at that. And that's where we get those five alones or solas of the Protestant Reformation. Um, true faith always produces works of obedience. And so uh, that's why Roman Catholicism looks at justification and says, you actually have to be just. Reformed Gospel says that you have both faith and works, that faith is justification plus works, right? That justification is that we're counted just. And there's the difference. And, and part of the confusion comes when uh, the, the scripture was translated, bless you, when the scripture was translated um, into Latin. Um, for one, there were not very good 
uh, scholars at, at, in the, when they originally translated it. And the earlier translations uh, uh, essentially gave the appearance uh, and used words that meant to be just. Okay, about a hundred years before uh, Luther, um, during what was called the Scholastic period, there was a huge increase in the not only number of texts that became available from places like Arabia, um, Africa, so forth, were were brought together, but also there were more Greek and Hebrew scholars that actually were knew what they were doing in, in a very uh, progressive way. They knew uh, the difference between, and, and Latin even, they knew the difference between 6th century Latin and 10th century Latin. They could look at a document and say, this is one and this is the other. In fact, it was during that time when there was this document that was written in Latin, and it was a document that basically... Uh, was supposed to have been uh, given to the church by Constantine that essentially handed over political power to the church from the emperor. Okay? Um, And it was supposedly done in the 5th century. Um, Well, obviously, by Constantine in the 4th century, but the church ratified it in the 5th century under Gregory. But um, what happened was uh, some these, this new scholar got to looking in the Vatican at these documents, and he said, "Wait a second, that's not written. That's not written in fifth century Latin. That that's written in tenth century Latin." <laughs> so the whole thing was a fraud, and and so a lot of these things started coming to light. Well, when they began retranslating the scriptures. Uh, they realized that the word for justification was not the word that means to be just. It's a word that means to be reckoned or counted just. That Abraham was accounted righteous because he believed God. It, it's the, the gospel in its, in its very primal form is that what God said Abraham believed what God says we believe and so the the recovery of the gospel might sound very simple when stated but it was very profound by the time you get uh, to the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries when you began having all these changes uh, an understanding of the scripture um, for almost a thousand years it wasn't even required of priests that they read the Bible in fact most of them had never seen a Bible unless they had gone to Rome and if they did if they were in a larger city they, with the church if it was a larger church would have a Bible but it would be chained to the pulpit literally chained to the pulpit which I guess is kind of a cool metaphor but uh, it wasn't good for uh, the gospel. So they ended up, um, really the priests believed whatever 
the papacy and the bishopric told them to believe. And it had become this doctrine of, of grace, yes, and, but it was faith, yes, but it was bound to works because you had to be just. And to be just, there had to be some way for you to become really just. And so Rome began developing this doctrine of uh, justification that was, uh, they, they used the, the, the word that at baptism, justification is, or grace is infused. Okay. In other words, it is poured into. That's literally what the word meant was poured into you at infant baptism. Okay. They still believed in original sin, but this grace, which overcomes original sin, is infused into you at baptism. It's poured into you at baptism. And as long as you don't sin anymore, you're good to go. But as soon as you commit a sin... So then they, they split sin into different kinds. One they called venial sin, which was less per sin, not as bad as sin. And the other was mortal sin. And mortal sin would kill the grace that had been infused into you at baptism. So now what do you do? You get rebaptized? What you would think, right? You got baptized once and infused, you do. No. To reacquire that grace, you had to go through a system called penance. And penance uh, is essentially what the whole structure of Roman Catholicism is based on the acquisition of grace through faith plus works. So you have to have faith, and it is by grace. But the works are meritoriously necessary. And if not yours, somebody else's. And that's how they ended up with this whole system of penance with purgatory and worship, the treasury of merit. And it's literally a thing. The treasury of merit is a real, real deal. It's a... It, yeah, it's not a physical block, but it, it's, a, it's a calculation that's done. The Vatican actually has a calculation of the treasury of merits of the saints and of Christ. And so there's, there's various kinds of merit. There's, there's what the Roman church calls, con, calls congruous merit, and that's the merit or the works that Christ produced the works that that you as a, a penitent believer would do, like so, say so many Our Fathers or Hail Marys or give to the poor or whatever the, was required of, of you. Um, those are works that God is necessarily bound to accept. He has to accept that. Because it's done in faith, and it's merit that is for the purpose of of satisfying uh, of, of works of satisfaction. So, you, 
God accepts those because he has to. Okay? Um, there's also works called condign merit. Condign merit is that merit by which they're good works, but God can take it or leave it. But he'll usually take it. So those are extra works. Uh, that might be a devotion to a saint or or extra giving to the poor or things like that that you haven't gone and confessed a sin and required penance, okay? And then there's what's called supererogatory merit. Supererogatory merit is merit over and above what is necessary. And that's where you get into the system of saints and all of that kind of stuff um, where not only were they good enough to satisfy for their own sin through grace and, and faith, but they had extra merit like Mother Teresa or St. Francis or St. Augustine. or some, they, they had extra merit. Well, that's calculated into the treasury of merit. So if you... Uh, for instance, die lacking merit. Well, then they have to. You have to do something. You can't go right to heaven. They got to do something with you. So you go to purgatory, right? This is where purgatory comes from. And I'm mentioning all these things because if you'll notice, all these things were things that came out of the scriptures in this little church in Bern that are saying these aren't according to scripture. So this whole system is built on this this pyramid, really, of of a system of merit plus faith um, that gets you right with God. And the gospel was that isn't right. It's not faith plus. It's faith alone. Now. Faith, uh, in, in its various uh, explanations, saving faith is something that we want to be clear because the, that was one thing the Reformers said. Faith is not a work that we uh, meritoriously produce. And this is part of, of the recovery of the gospel that we need to be clear on whether we're Reformed believers or not, saving faith is saving faith. And it has three parts. The Reformers were very careful to talk about having faith and having saving faith. What is saving faith? And, excuse me, the word faith is just, this literally means to believe. And so, um, the Reformers talked about there are really three aspects to saving faith. And one, the first one, in Latin, is called notitia. 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 And that basically is the content or the information. Um, So it's the data, the information. 
what do we what is it that we believe and, and when we talk about the creeds and the confessions and things like that um, it's what's written down there it's what's in scripture it's the information if we read the 23rd psalm we can read the 23rd psalm and understand what it's saying we can read the creeds and the confessions and understand what they're saying obviously if we understand the language they're written in so that's what it is that's all it is Um, but there's more to saving faith than just understanding what's being said the second part is called essentia or are there, are there two S's and a sin? Yes. Another version to ask? Yes. Huh? Yes, there is. Okay. So oh, it's... Sorry, no. Oh. So yeah, it was out the C, though. That is, that is like going up a hill. Yeah. E and... Yeah, E and T. E and T, right. Yeah, right. with the C is like ascending... Right. Ascent, not ascent. Right. Okay. We'll get it figured out. Is ascent. That that is acceptance. That's ascent to or acceptance of what's being said. In other words, it's rational agreement. I can I can look at what's said in the scripture, I can look at what's in the creeds, and I can say I understand what it is, and I agree that's what it says, and I agree with that. Um, a good, uh, probably the best example that and we've that we've all heard is the the example of the chair, right? And I don't even remember where it originally came from. Now I've heard it so many times, but what what we have is a, is a chair, right? And and in in philosophical ter- terms. Uh, according to Aristotle, we would say that this chair has something in common with all chairs. It has chairness, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, so we look at this chair and we say it's a chair, as opposed to a table. It's a chair. So we have the data, and I look at the chair and I say, hmm, okay, that's a chair. That would hold me up. Okay, that's a scent. That says, I look at the chair, it has chairness, I agree with that, it will serve its purpose. Okay, that's the second part of saving faith. Now, just because you have notitia and ascentia, or ascent, doesn't mean that you have saving faith. In fact, James goes almost out of his way to say, even the demons have that. They believe that God exists and that he is God. Okay, but it's a third part that makes faith saving faith, and that's what's called fiducia. Or in English, what we would say, trust. Okay, that means I sit in the chair. Okay. I actually sit in it. I I know it's a chair. I agree that it will hold me up. But unless I sit in the chair, it's not. I'm not exercising 
uh, fiducia, right? So that's saving faith. I know it, I agreed to it, and and I, it's applied. So that's what the reformers were talking about when they said, let's not mistake simply agreeing with something as being saving faith. And so when they talk about... Uh, for instance, the promise to Abraham, when it says, it doesn't say God that Abraham believed that there was God or believed that he meant what he said. It says Abraham believed God, put his trust in God, and it was accounted to him, okay, as righteousness, which basically means that God... Uh, gave Abraham the information and caused Abraham to sit in the chair. And, and, and there's a lot of uh, application we could make to that over Scripture. But that was the difference between uh, the faith that Rome was preaching and the faith of the Reformers from Scripture. Essentially, there's a doctrine within Roman Catholicism that says, I don't have to know what the the Roman Catholic Church teaches. I just agree that they're right, and that is sufficient. So, in fact, you will find, I have literally talked to Roman Catholics today and asked them what they believe on something, and they say, they will say, I don't know what the Church teaches, but I believe it. Well... Okay. <laughs> they li- yeah, literally within Roman Catholicism, and it's an old doctrine. It's actually medieval doctrine that if you believe what Rome believes, then that's as good as knowing, understanding, and believing and trusting in that yourself. So essentially, it's a weird form of of imputation of faith without... Uh, a blind yeah, what's that? Like a blind faith. Yeah, it's, it's totally, totally a blind faith. And essentially it was to the benefit of Rome, uh, particularly during the periods where there was disputation between Rome and the political, uh, the emperor primarily, um, that you have people understanding that, yes, the emperor uh, was the temporal power, but the church has power over the emperor, and they're the ultimate authority of Christ on earth. That's where you get this, this term that the pope or the, the highest office of Roman Catholicism um, is essentially Christ on earth. And so that's a lot of power. Um, and they exercise that. Um, Not to take you too far, there's a text um, in regards to saving faith and stuff. But, um, have, you re- have you read anything or about Gordon Clark and like his? Uh, I, I ran into the, someone that believed some of that stuff, and he was basically, it sounded like they were saying. There isn't three different kinds of faith. It's just, it's just basically just 
believe in like the the first step or second step, like trust isn't part of it. Yeah. And I'm you know I'm like well that says that's what demons even have that kind of faith. And anyways, I was just a, I was very confused. You'll you'll find <laughs> some universal universalist uh, Thayer, the guy that wrote the lexicon back in the night. He was a he was a Unitarian, had a very similar. Uh, belief. Yeah, it <laughs> seems like a very weird thing coming from someone who is in that reformed tradition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With Clark, yeah. Says, now it's just believing like, yeah. the facts, kind yeah. of essentially. Yeah. That was my understanding of it, but I don't know what. Yeah, I. Um, Clark was very rationalistic in that way, and his followers have probably taken that too. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure he would have gone that far, but I know some of his later okay. uh, disciples would have. Yeah. Um, okay, let's look at... Um, let's look, oh, I wanted to go over this really quick, with you kind of put a, a face on where we came from and where we're at. Um, Anglicanism, or or in the U.S., Episcopal... Is that right? In the United States, Anglicanism is called the Episcopal Church. Um, But they're part of what's called the Worldwide Anglican Communion. Uh, which includes the Church of England. This is actually the Church of England in this context. But uh, in 1517, the beginning of the of the Protestant Reformation, um, you have the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and in England, you had with Henry VIII stirrings of Protestantism, but. Um, for all intents and purposes, Henry VIII was a pretty good Roman Catholic, um, but he just he didn't like some of the doctrines. And he tended more toward, um, to be fair, he tended more toward biblical Christianity than most of Roman Catholicism at the time, um, and he did not like their teachings on marriage. He didn't like that his priests weren't married, for one thing, and he didn't like the fact that he couldn't marry and divorce at will. Uh, <laughs> he he liked, disliked that a lot. Um, well, that'd be forbidden by both. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but not, well, be much more permissive with his version. It's because his... What, huh? It's less forgiving than No, other way. Yeah. There's no pope to rival his yeah. authority. Yeah. yeah, he is the pope of the Church of England, which essentially that was the case with, with Henry VIII. But um, his daughter, Elizabeth I, she was very reformed in what we would call reformed. Um, uh, she wholeheartedly uh, dove into not only the the proto-reformation of her her father, but the the Lutheran uh, and particularly 
the version of Reformed theology coming out of Switzerland and out of of, um, France at the time. So she is uh, kind of held up as the the queen of the Reformation in in England. And so the Protestant church um, is a really a turning point um, but you'll notice also that for nearly 1500 years there was essentially one Catholic or universal church uh, visible um, and we make that distinction between the church visible and the church invisible okay the true church is invisible obviously so there the, the church invisible there were uh, definitions within the context of the church invisible, but the church visible was Roman Catholicism. And unfortunately, with the Protestant Reformation, uh, the church visible became very fractured. And so at, at the Reformation, uh, for instance, today, we have, um, we wish we only had these divisions. But uh, if you, I, I, I did a quick study a while back to find a chart that is somewhat accurate today. It's a, it's a decade or so old, but it's a very splintered um, chart of churches that have come out of the Reformation. Uh, I may not have put it in here. Um, but just to, just to look at what, what we have here, um, for instance, um, we have on one end the Baptist or Baptistic churches, um, and on the other end the Reformed and, and ultimately the Presbyterian church that came out of Scotland. Um, what we call the Presbyterian Church essentially was the Reformed Church uh, of Scotland that was trained by Calvin in in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, but Lutheranism um, kind of took a took a sideways turn after Luther's death, uh, and many of the doctrines of of even the very uh, conservative Lutherans today will differ on things like the sacraments um, and uh, even on Luther's view of, for instance, predestination. He, uh, he was emphatic about, in fact, most of what Calvin wrote, Luther wrote first about predestination. Yeah, they're, which, they're, yeah and modern Lutheranism uh, does not believe uh, in, in predestination uh, there uh, w- regardless of which version of Luther- modern Lutheranism you, you look at whether it's Missouri Synod or Evangelical or, or Minnesota or Disciple Melanchthon right? yeah is it more like Luther- yeah. Like yeah Melanchthon was pretty much the, the turning point he, he rejected a lot of the more Augustinian teachings of Luther. 
Um, so you have the Baptists, um, and, and Baptists uh, would be, you get into things like, um, like uh, Adventists, um, and uh, all the various Baptists we have today. Um, the Anabaptists, um, in their tradition, we would say uh, Mennonites, uh, Amish, all of those would be in the Anabaptist tradition. Uh, coming out of the Reformation. Now remember, these are all Protestant, but they're not all Reformed or Presbyterian. And then, and then Lutheran. Now, um, coming out of Anglicanism under under Elizabeth, and eventually uh, John uh, Knox trained in in uh, uh, Switzerland uh, under Calvin, and then uh, him and Elizabeth didn't get along well. Uh, but uh, uh, there were others who, under um, King James, who was raised in Scotland uh, of King James Bible fame, um, uh, was the Westminster uh, Assembly. And that was the uh, group that over 10 years um, this assembly produced. And they were actually part of Parliament. They were a committee of Parliament that was uh, given the task of really trying to bring back together the Church of England that had been split when uh, Elizabeth's um, son, Philip, had been, um, uh, was, I'm sorry, Mary, her sister's son, Philip, uh, became king. He was Roman Catholic. So the country basically swung back towards Roman Catholicism. And so you have this uh, tension within um, English Protestantism that ten- was tending more toward Roman Catholicism. There were war. There were all kinds of, you know, it got very violent. And um, so coming out of that, we have the Episcopal Church, which is, came to the colonies in the United States, Methodism, which was a late comer that really came out of Anglicanism, actually out of the Baptist tradition, Anglicanism, and Presbyterianism um, under the Wesleys, uh, which is really a pietistic movement of the revivalist period in the United States, which is uh, mid-1700s through mid-1900s. uh, you have this move to really what we would see today as modern evangelicalism, much less uh, dependent upon what we would call the doctrines of grace. And that brings us to the doctrines of grace. Huh? This one? Yeah. Congregational, uh, Jonathan Edwards was congregational, and we'll ac- I'll actually talk about that in a few minutes about the form of, it's really the form of government rather than all of these guys, Reformed, Episcopal, Method, or Episcopal, Congregational, and Reformed, and Presbyterian, all kind of have the same core Reformed beliefs, 
but uh, they differ in the polity of the church, the government of the church. So uh, we'll talk about that when we look at the actual form of government. So, um, so we want to look at flowers. We're going to look at flowers. How about that? I'll bet you can't guess what kind of flower. A tulip. Okay. T-U-L-I-P. It's a flower, right? Can anybody tell me what the T stands for? We'll talk about how, how we got to Tulip, but um, it's more important what it is than how we got there. So. Total depravity. Uh, uh, some of the more modern uh, Reformed and Presbyterian teachers would rather call it, and probably better, better so, radical corruption. Okay, total depravity sounds like there's nothing of the image of God left that we're completely depraved as bad as we can possibly get. I mean, that kind of when you say total something, it kind of comes to that. But really what was meant to be conveyed was we are radically corrupt. Every part of our being is corrupted. Our emotions are corrupted. Our psychology is corrupted. Uh, our physical bodies are corrupted. Everything, every part of us is corrupted. And we have not only the original sin of Adam, but we ratify that by sinning ourselves. Uh, we, we, we do sins because our nature is a sinner. So uh, we're not sinners because we do sins. We are sinners, so we sin. So radical corruption is probably a better description. Um, but some, I think some call it total inability, uh, something like that. But if you call it radical corrupt or, uh, corruption, yeah, uh, you get rulep instead of tulip, and that messes up our flower. So uh, we'll leave it at tulip for now. Um, and then uh, you'll notice there are five letters in here, and sometimes these are called the five points of Calvinism. Okay. Um, and they're actually, the history of it is they're actually in response to five uh, errant teachings uh, early on in the Reformation. Um, that tended away from the teachings of the Reformers and what we believe to be scriptural teaching to... Uh, to be honest, more of what we see today in what we might call semi-Pelagian um, or, or modern evangelicalism where we have um, a, a different form of 
faith plus works. So, the, can you tell me what the U is? Do you know what the U is? Unconditional election. Unconditional in condition. Unconditional what? Election. What does unconditional election mean? What could that possibly mean? That means that we don't have, and this really flows from from this idea of radical corruption or total depravity, in that there's nothing in us that makes God select us for salvation. There's nothing in us that makes the condition for God to say, oh yeah, I want them. Okay, It's much like Abraham again, that God pointedly says, it's not because you were the greatest, it's not because you're the best, it's because I chose you. And so unconditional election basically just means we are not elect because of something that's within us. In fact, total depravity or radical corruption would tell us just the opposite of that. And now these are these five points of Calvinism uh, are we're really becoming more uh, within that context of we're Catholic and we're evangelical, but this is uh, reformed becoming reformed doctrine here that total depravity and unconditional election are are two unique distinctives of reformed theology. So just like sola scripture or the scripture alone and Christ alone and faith alone and grace alone to the glory of God alone are evangelical and of the Protestant Reformation, born from Scripture, these things, these five points of Calvinism, and they're, it's kind of odd, and Calvin probably would not be too happy that we call them the five points of Calvinism, because Calvin really didn't have anything to do with these five points. <laughs> these five points, he was long gone by then, and he would probably uh, be very unhappy. He didn't even want people to know where he was buried after he was dead. So I don't think he'd be happy having these called five points. But we call them five points of Calvinism. So, um, What do you think the L stands for? Limited atonement. There's only one why do I keep wanting to put more? <laughs> That's what I wrote. Huh? That's what I wrote. I always do that. Yeah, I don't know why I do that. Okay. Sometimes this is called particular atonement, which is probably a better, but then we've really messed the flower up. It's not even pronounceable. Um, we got a, a root. Then we have a root. Rupert. <laughs> Rupert. I also had a definite atonement. Definite 
Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's called sometimes it's called definite atonement. So, um, this is talking about the atonement of Christ. This is talking about the the work of Christ on the cross and what how big was that atonement is essentially what it is how big was the atonement of Christ limited atonement or particular atonement talks about did God send Christ to die for the sins of everyone or did he send Christ to die did Christ die for a certain people what what would you think would be the answer to that a certain people a certain a particular people we have that we see that in scripture where God talks about I will be your God and you will be my people talks about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 that he died for the sins of his people now this is another area of strong disagreement usually with our brothers and sisters in non-reformed tradition Uh, for instance uh, many of our, our southern baptist friends and the church that we grew up in the reformation or the restoration movement and um, uh, a lot of uh, church of christ um, many of the pentecostal churches um, a lot of those uh, most churches today would disagree they would say well christ died for everyone everyone on the planet and if we look at Scripture, that's not borne out in Scripture because we have specificity in Scripture. He died for a specific people. He, he doesn't talk about the whole world except in the sense that God loves the, his creation, loves the entire world uh, in a certain sense, but he has a particular love for his people. He has a specific reason for sending Christ to a specific people. And so, um, and, and if you think about this rationally, it also is quite clear that if Christ died for the sin of everyone, and yet only some are saved, then Christ died for in vain. He died for uh, sins that you will also pay for. It would make him unjust. It would make God, exactly. Why would you be in hell if your sins are paid for? It would make God an unjust God, and we know that he is not. So, uh, I think one of the the greatest uh, things, uh, the hymn that we sing, Faith Reviving by Augustus Toplady, where it says... um, um, uh, in the second verse, complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid, whate'er thy people owed. 
nor can his wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled in thy blood. And then he goes on to say, um, and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine. Payment cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. So, he's got very good theology here. Uh, he's obviously a Calvinist. No, he was, but uh, being a little bit facetious there. But um, it's obvious that even from a rational point of view, limited atonement makes sense because um, if we just say, well, Christ died for everyone, then we either have to say that that God is unjust and that Christ has paid for sins and yet people are going to hell because of their sin that has been paid for, or we have to say that there's some reason within us so they all flow together. Limited atonement comes from unconditional election. Unconditional election says there's nothing in us. Well, if there's nothing in us, then it has to be God's choosing. If it's God's choosing, then the atonement has to be limited unless he, you're a universalist and he chooses everyone. And to be honest, that's why there are universalists within the realm of Christianity uh, uh, over in the course of history is that for that very reason, many have have gone the way of universalism. I think that's the only thing that makes sense if you really think yeah, it about is. the atonement. And either there's a particular people or, or, it's, universal. or it's universal. Yeah, you can't, you can't have... Yeah. yeah, there's no tertium quid with that. It's either, either or. And what's the I? <coughs> I... I do have two in this one. <laughs> Irresistible what? Grace. grace. Irresistible grace. Okay. Now this is a big one because this also flows from the other three. Irresistible grace essentially means that that God's grace is going to be effectual. Okay? Now, it, it's, the way it's worded, we might think that, that it means that we're incapable of resisting God, which obviously isn't true because we resist God all the time. Uh, what it really means, and, and if you get a chance to look, read Jonathan Edwards, uh, particularly Freedom of the Will, uh, or uh, Luther's bondage of the will um, really bears out this idea of, of irresistible grace essentially means that God changes something in us that we no longer resist His grace. There's something effectual about His calling. Okay? Um, in fact, the effectualness of his calling uh, is, again, I say, tied to the total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement because if Christ died for a people, 
uh, and it were something in us that that we in our nature resist God, then there would be instance at least of Christ dying for someone who did not benefit from his atonement. And scripture indicates that's not the case. That all those that Christ died for are his, not one, it says, will be lost. So, uh, John chapter 6, John chapter 10, uh, Ephesians 1, we, we see that irresistible grace may not be the best wording, but uh, we have a, a grace that is effectual. And so God's grace does what it's set out to do. Christ's atonement does down to the last person what it's set out to do. So irresistible grace. And lastly, the P. Now, this is the only one people really actually like that aren't uh, reformed. Sometimes they'll agree with with total depravity reluctantly, but... Normally, this is the only one that they, they really like. Well, yeah, I know there are some that don't, but... And then the other thing I've heard of is that, you know, there's quite a few people that don't. They'll accept them all except the L, and then that but, just makes you a twip. <laughs> a twip. say preservation of the saints, some people say perseverance of the saints. They're both codependent, so um, God God preserves and we persevere because God preserves. So um, it essentially means that uh, you maybe also heard of it as once saved, always saved. That's the way I always heard heard of it. Yeah. That's kind of a anemic yeah. understanding of it. Yeah, it's kind of a weird once saved, always saved. It sounds very I had some Reformed Baptist friends growing up that believed that, and I always disliked it very much. That way of saying it kind of goes hand in hand with the sort of prayer, prayer uh, means of salvation, like a, a carnal Christianity. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kind of, you, get, you say a prayer, and then you're saved. Yeah. You're always, yeah. Right? yeah. Once a people. Yeah. That's why I said it's an anemic. Yeah, it's, it is very, a very anemic version. Uh, idea you can live however you want to live you just say the yeah. magic words yeah it's very antinomian at it's, yeah. its core but yeah we find the, the preservation and I pervert, prefer preservation because I think it goes much more along the lines of the rest of the tulip uh, if you have a radically corrupt individual and God uh unconditionally electing for no reason within us in a particular atonement and a changing of our will that makes us receptive and indeed uh, compliant with God, uh, God's saving us, then preservation uh, makes us 
persevere. And that is, uh, you know, when we read in Scripture that he will complete what he begins, essentially, that, that God will, will um, uh, see his people to the end. Uh, that doctrine, again, is one that has, uh, is woven throughout Scripture, that even we, though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Uh, the people of Israel were unfaithful, yet God was faithful to them. Um, that all points towards God preserving his people. And that's really, um, these, these doctrines, this, this tulip or whatever you want to call it, uh, these five points of Calvinism are really the heart uh, along with the five solas. Um, if you don't remember uh, a lot of anything else, those two things are core to Reformed belief and core to, to Presbyterian um, uh, and Reformed churches, uh, as well as others. Uh, to begin with, like I said, the Episcopal and Congregational churches were all very very much reformed and believed these core doctrines. Um, Presbyterianism uh, developed um, really as as a later um, part of the reformed tradition that came out of um, the reformed churches in Switzerland uh, that came out of the Reformed churches in France and the Reformed churches in Germany, um, aside from Lutheranism. And in Scotland, uh, primarily John Knox, but there were others um, that, that uh, really took the teaching of, of the Scripture as a... Uh, complete framework for not only the belief and the doctrines of the church, but also the government of the church. And so that's why um, when we look at, at um, the government of the church, we want to see it as biblical as our doctrine and our worship. And so in... Uh, at Trinity Reformed Church as part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, and although we're not the only Presbyterian denomination that's theologically conservative, there are a lot of smaller ones. Um, we're, I think we're the largest, yeah. we're the largest Orthodox uh, or uh, we're the largest, uh, the largest Presbyterian con- conservative denomination, yeah. In reformed denomination, uh, there are. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I really like this array. It's nice. Um, It'd be effective for keeping people away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I want. Uh, Um, 
there are basically three three kinds of church government that we see in in reformed uh, Christianity today, really in all of evangelical Christianity today. And that's congregational, not to be confused with the denomination or the, the sect of, of uh, Protestantism that's congregational, although they are congregational in their polity. Um, and also Sometimes uh, we use the word Episcopal for the hierarchical uh, form of government. So there's essentially three types of government within all of Christendom. Um, Congregational is probably the most familiar to us in the United States. Most Bible churches, Baptist churches, congregational churches... Um, Church of Christ, um, Pentecostal churches, all of those tend to be congregational in polity. And polity just means form of government. Congregational uh, churches are essentially led by the minister, but the congregation as a uh, democratic body, you might, might say, is responsible for um, the government of the church. In other words, everything is is ultimately ratified by the congregation, uh, and they have the ultimate authority. So it's really congregational authority. Um, probably one of the reasons where we see that mostly in congregations in the United States is because of our culture. Our culture is a, a democratic republic, which tends to be uh, a very parallel form of government to what you see in congregational churches. You have a board of some kind, usually a deacon board or an elder board, um, but they are only have authority as far as the congregation oversees that authority and and the authority is with the congregation and through the congregation and then delegated through the elder deaconship and, and the minister. And today in most congregational churches it goes congregation, minister, and deacon or elder board. It's usually a very personified um, minister that is is in charge underneath the congregation. So that's why you have a lot of um, 
large churches that when bad things happen, um, you see congregation either splitting the church directly or uh, in a major way firing the minister or getting rid of the minister through some <laughs> other means. Um, so you end up having a, a local government that's very strong through a democratic process within the congregation. And that's congregational um, even back to the time of Jonathan Edwards. Um, the congregation was very powerful. Uh, in fact, um, the congregation would appoint elders that really were less than authoritative uh, when it came to uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards essentially being fired from his church. Um, they eventually, he eventually uh, was was uh, uh, apologized to for all of that. But it, it basically started with one person who swayed a large portion of the congregation to fire him. And so um, it, we don't see that uh, form of government scripturally. It, it it's really a a post-reformation form of uh, church government. Uh, I don't I don't know of any church before the Reformation that you could say was congregational. I think it would have been a totally foreign concept to most most people. Um, um, it just like seems to some of the more democratic yes. sort of political influences and stuff. And Really, yeah, yeah. Maybe a lot more authoritative and like hierarchical before then, right? Yeah, in fact, that that go right into our uh, hierarchical or Episcopal um, uh, structured church. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England, uh, Methodism, all of those churches have a hierarchical polity um, where you will, uh, for instance, hear someone uh, referred to as a bishop. Usually when you hear someone referred to as a bishop, even though scripturally the word is synonymous with elder, uh, it tends to be viewed as hierarchical. Uh, and early on in the church, there became ministers who were in larger congregations, uh, particularly around the Roman Empire, um, that had sway over smaller churches, and they uh, eventually became uh, bishops in the sense that they were above uh, the elders in other churches. Uh, it didn't start out that way, but it ended up that way. And in fact, it ended up where you had the Bishop of Rome, in fact, the Pope still called the Bishop of Rome, um, who was the highest authority. Uh, and uh, part of that was, again, political, part of it was geographical, and simply because of the fact that the two were so commonly mixed, especially after Constantine, um, 
we ended up with a, a, a hierarchical structure within Roman Catholicism that's multi-layered. Um, and it is within uh, Methodism and the Episcopal Church as well. Uh, you have a very hierarchical structure. So the local church, um, I think we were talking this morning about um, sometimes uh, it will be one of the highest levels of the church that will directly appoint a minister to a, a local congregation. Um, for instance, um, like Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church in Montrose has just gone through a process of getting Christian a new minister there. Um, they went through a very local process. They went through uh, their local session or, or presbyters uh, and then to the regional uh, presbytery uh, and and that is where the channel for for hiring a minister uh, for that congregation for a pastor there came from. If you were in uh, at a uh, Methodist church, for example, even in a small town like Montrose, you would you would be assigned a minister by the synod. So it would be by well, it would be a bishop of the synod at a, at a higher level. Uh, they may know nothing, absolutely nothing, about either the church nor the minister, but yet they will appoint them. So yeah, it's it 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 can be advantageous in governing a large body. Um, but it's also very easily corruptible and very easily abused uh, in, in, in power structure as we've seen in the Roman church and others. So the hierarchical nature of, of polity is not what we see in scripture. Uh, and in following through Acts, uh, we see uh, that the elders that were appointed are the the ones who uh, uh, really, on the local level, um, uh, which brings us to Presbyterianism, um, are a government that is essentially spiritual in nature that is representative, uh, truly representative. It's not just everybody shouting... Uh, and the most votes wins. It's truly representative. A local church elects a plurality of elders, and that's the authority um, that governs the local church. So it's governed by, by hopefully a mature group of men who are selected um, and not a single individual that's that's essentially mob selected, but um, these representatives are uh, go through a process, and and uh, that's why Montrose, for example, have, have been without a a teaching elder or a, a pastor for a longer period of time. It tends to be longer because. Uh, not simply because there's a, a lack of people to fill the position, but because there's a process to go through of vetting, of testing, of all these things to make sure that a teaching elder is uh, qualified, that a teaching elder is called, that a teaching elder is in a position to 
minister to that particular congregation. So um, it's not simply a matter of somebody at a higher office saying, you go here, you go there. Um, So elders from local churches, for instance, our church, uh, and other and elders from other churches in our geographical region, then um, in Presbyterianism there are only three levels. There's general assembly, presbytery, and session, and that's it. And and although it sounds hierarchical, <laughs> when we say it's it's actually not hierarchical. It these divisions um, are on the same level. So in, in Presbyterianism, and I I think this is where a lot of people misunderstand because we use some terms that are pejorative and tend to look hierarchical. And there are situations within the church courts that become hierarchical in distinction. But in the nature of the eldership, there is not a hierarchy. Whether we go from the session level to presbytery or presbytery to general assembly, an elder is an elder. And the elders, whether you're representing at the local level in a session meeting or representing at the presbytery in a regional meeting or whether you're represented at the general assembly, an elder is co-equal with all other elders. And I, that's probably the most important thing to stress if you don't remember anything else about Presbyterianism. Um, now, there are other churches like... Um, that call themselves simply Reformed churches, Um, for instance, the the URCNA, are Presbyterian in polity, uh, but Reformed in name. Okay, so that's a lot of times you'll hear Presbyterian and Reformed. Well, most Reformed churches have a Presbyterian form of polity or of government. So, the URCNA, and just to confuse things, they don't call them Session Presbytery General Assembly. They call them Consistory. What's Classes? Classes. Yeah, and Synod. So, essentially, they're the same thing as Presbytery or uh, General Assembly Presbyterian session, but uh, they just call them. They have to be different. Is that just coming from the different historical? These guys, these guys basically come from. Um, it's like the three forms of unity. Dutch. Yeah. D U T. There's a T in there somewhere. Dutch re- Reformed. And these guys come from Scottish Presbyterian. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So pretty much anything that comes from the from the continent 
will use the classes synod and consistory um, names. I, I don't know why. So, uh, any questions at this point? I want to make a distinction here in just a minute if you don't have any questions. Um, between um, the uh, within the session or with any anybody, we have what are called teaching elders and ruling elders. And that's a distinction that is made. That isn't a a one elder is is over the other elder, like a teaching elder is over the ruling elder. Actually, if anything, it's the other way around. But it's the the teaching elders are primarily uh, are the pastors, the the those who are called to to the pulpit, to the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. Um, the ruling elders are generally so. Zach would be a teaching elder, uh, and and both are are vetted by the session and the presbytery, uh, and both are uh, in most Presbyterian churches. And now I found out not, not in all, but in most Presbyterian churches are are ratified or accepted by the congregation. Uh, usually, uh, the congregation puts forth. Uh, a, a call to eldership uh, or put out a call for eldership and then the congregation usually it, it's a combination does, does, Trinity, does Trinity do a combination of, of congregational non-elder and elder for their hiring like a search committee yeah a search committee yeah yeah they require for, I think I, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I think that's a um, BCO thing they have to appoint a search committee. I don't think I don't think it has to be. I thought they had to have at least one ruling elder. On yeah, the but, but they they also have congregation members on the search. Committee. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. I, I think it it's uh, we'll have to look, but in the book of church order, I think there's a requirement for at least one ruling elder and one non-elder on a search committee. I don't remember, but I'll have to look. So anyway. There's a distinction made because we see a distinction in the scripture um, dealing between uh, those who are uh, essentially, uh, and and this is kind of a crass way to put it, I guess, uh, but in the, in the full-time or called uh, to the pulpit uh, paid ministry and those uh, who are called um, to uh, be a fellow elder uh, in in the spiritual oversight of the congregation, and so uh, and it really depends in the PCA, uh, other denominations like the Orthodox Presbyterian and the Evangelical Presbyterian churches and the uh, various uh, I think even the ECO. Um, they have other stipulations on on uh, how uh, 
elders are are vetted by the congregation, but um, essentially you end up with teaching elders and ruling elders, regardless of the denomination. Uh, so, really, Presbyterianism stresses the the priesthood of all believers, um, and, and there's a um, leveling. Uh, that the scripture imposes and not the uh, framework of a uh, from the outside that's that's imposed on the church, and that's why uh, we believe that Presbyterianism is the polity that comes from scripture or is exegeted from scripture scripture um, rather than one that's imposed on scripture. And I, I would argue that both. Both hierarchical and congregational uh, polity is imposed on scripture um, rather than taken from it. But that's just me. Yeah. Also, the, and him. Um, I, would, I believe that you know the, the American form of government was originally based upon a lot of Presbyterian sort of. It was, yeah, actually a lot of it was based on Calvinism directly from Geneva. But the whole idea of balance of power, that's a a whole, yeah, well, it actually comes from from, uh, uh, Calvinism in in the Reformed Church of Geneva. Um, Yeah, much of what we see, I mean, really comes back to that whole idea that, that, Man is radically corrupt, and if you put power in one or in a small place, um, there's going to be problems that are are not solvable because of the nature of man. And and to have a balance of power that's based upon a standard is about as biblical as you can get. True, it's it. it Corrupted, uh, but yeah, I just I know we made the connection between congregationalism and like American politics and stuff. But I think yeah, the the original ideal of, and still how things are still set up is closer to Presbyterianism. Yes, as opposed to where it's kind of the corruption of it tended towards that country. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we always tend more towards the mob rule. Uh, of of pure democracy, uh, you know, where basically every every just whoever can shout the loudest uh, and gets the counts the number of noses whether it adheres to a standard or not. And that's that's kind of the devolution of of the system. But originally, I mean, we think you know, for instance, the there are. Uh, large portions of our uh, American um, uh, Constitution and Bill of Rights that are directly based on um, essentially not only biblical principles, but written documents that come out of Presbyterian churches um, in the colonies. So... Uh, yeah, it, it's hard to not make that connection. Um, 
Let's see. What? How long? I'm, I'm over, aren't I? I want to. I want to finish up one thing before we finish up today. Um, I want to look at the um, in our worship. Um, are there any questions we left un, undone for Presbyterian? I think everybody understands Presbyterian <laughs> pretty, pretty well at this point. Um, wanted to look at what's generally called the regulative principle in worship, and again, this is a division that we see between Reformed and Presbyterian churches and the rest of evangelical Christianity. Um, Essentially, the regulative principle says we approach worship in a way that uh, we worship according to what God says, not according to what he prohibits. The regulative principle says we want to uh, align our worship with Scripture and what's commanded rather than aligning our worship with simply what God doesn't explicitly prohibit in Scripture. And I would say today that the second is what we generally see in most evangelical, even, even very conservative theologically, churches today is tend more toward the idea of, well, God said we didn't say we couldn't do that, so that's okay. And tend to err on the side of let's worship according to what Scripture says rather than what it doesn't prohibit. So, um, I and I honestly don't think it's as fine a line as some people would try to make it out to be. So, uh, there are always uh, places where we can um, we can we can look in Scripture and see that that God does not simply allow His people to worship Him any way that He doesn't specifically forbid. I mean, He commands us to worship according to His word. He commanded the people of Israel to worship according to His word. In fact. He got very irate when they worshipped uh, not according to what he said, uh, even though he didn't specifically prohibit it. Um, a, a good example of that is is the priesthood, um, where Aaron's sons decided to do something. We don't know what, but it says they offered strange fire before the Lord. I have no idea what that is. Scripture doesn't explain it. But God kills them on the spot. And, and you know, we, we have other instances of God um, who is normally long-suffering and very gracious in instances of his worship and, and uh, his reverence of him um, really makes an example um, and I think another place we see this is, and, and some would disagree with this, but uh, for instance, with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt and make the golden calf, 
I honestly don't think that the people of Israel just led out of Egypt by this pillar of fire by day or by night and the cloud by day. I don't think they all of a sudden just decided, well, we're going to make a, a, a golden calf and worship the god Baal or the god Osiris or, or whatever. I think honestly they were they were representing Yahweh with this idol, mm-hmm. and and which is essentially uh, forbidden, uh, but uh, not specifically the the they weren't given specific instructions saying you can't do this, but they knew the prohibition against idolatry, and that God was not to be represented. And and so uh, to be like the rest of their culture, um, they had a representation of God. And but we see this constantly in even churches today, and it kind of drives me crazy. You'll have Christian churches that have pictures of Jesus hanging in the sanctuary. I'm like, seriously, people. You never read the second commandment, <laughs> you know. It's uh, and uh, I, was it you that was saying you you took down a picture of Jesus and hung it and put it in the closet or something? Was that you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we were preaching at this church on the Eastern Plains, and they had a little missionary house above the main the bed. It's a great picture, like totally blonde. I thought it was. I couldn't remember. No, it's not invited back. No, I don't know why. You didn't put the picture back. They had other pictures in the closet, so I put another one back. A mountain. A picture out. Yeah, invited it. A nice mountain scene. Oh, this is what you meant. So, so really, the, the regulative principle, um, and from John Calvin to the Westminster Divines, um, really viewed the, the matter of corporate worship um, in many aspects differently. But in this particular instance, they were all in agreement that obedience to Scripture and what God commands is how we're to worship. And... And, you know, that's, that's why we have a very um, specific and are always reviewing. At our session meetings, we, we go over our order of service as well as what the content of that is there. And say, essentially, look at it and say, is this... In Scripture, is this what Scripture tells us to do? And I think it's important that we always are careful to do that. Um, now, that doesn't mean there isn't room for expression, room for uh, other things that are are definitely permissible in worship, um, like styles of music and so forth. But there are very specific things that we're called to do in Scripture. And that's why in many of our places we remind people that this is worship in something we're doing. 
It's worship in giving. It's worship in the sacraments. It's worship in that this, these things are in Scripture and they're called. Uh, we're called to worship God in those particular elements. And that's all I wanted to say. So I'll I'll end there right now.